We start the new year with the promise that the next 12 months can help bring clarity to our most complex healthcare issues, including misinformation about vaccines, the continued fight over abortion rights, and the record high suicide rate in 2023. We talked to leading experts on these topics. We've captured the key parts of these interviews and have important updates to share since our original discussions took place. Where have we been? Where are we going? This is Conversations on Healthcare. Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. You know, each interview we conduct captures a moment in time. We know our guests strive to share the latest details they have in our conversations that started with our very first guest, and you remember it, Margaret, I do. 14 I do. years ago. <laughs> uh, I think it was early in September. We had uh, the then Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, on. That's right. And just think about that. That was six months before the Affordable Care Act passes in March of the following year, right? right? And we really wanted to come together and share new information and developments that occurred each month and week uh, after we talked to them. We started off with the speaker and things only got more interesting from there. Years later, as we review some of our most consequential interviews in 2023, We'll update you on where things stand now. Take, for instance, our interview in October with Dr. Mandy Cohen, the relatively new director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. At that time, COVID, flu, RSV vaccination seasons had all begun in earnest. Well, first, more than 10 million Americans have already gotten the updated COVID vaccine. Um, we're continuing to see millions of Americans get their updated flu shot. RSV, again, is only for our older adults, and we have a, um, an immunization for our babies, and that's um, uh, historic. We've never had that before. But I do think that folks um, need to hear from trusted partners, trusted um, folks in their lives. Often that is their doctor, um, or maybe it is a nurse practitioner or a nurse um, that, that they see. Um, we know from our, our research, those continue to be the most trusted messengers uh, related to this information. The most common reason that someone did not get vaccinated is that their doctor didn't offer it to them. And they didn't talk to them about it. And right. So those are really powerful moments and conversations. So we are doing a lot of talking to our physician community, to our nurse practitioner community and nursing and others um, to, to talk about the importance of just bringing it up with your with your patients. And look, uh, we've looked at this data very closely. I think these vaccines have been studied extensively by independent bodies um, and the safety of them has been you know, reviewed. I wouldn't recommend vaccines for the American people that I wouldn't recommend for my own family. So I've gotten my updated COVID vaccine, got it last week. I got my updated flu shot. My kids who are nine and 11 just got their updated COVID vaccine yesterday, in fact. My husband's been vaccinated, my parents who are over 65. So again, this is something I'd recommend for my own family to keep them safe. Well, just a few days after that interview, uh, Margaret, the country learned there was a shortage of RSV immunizations. And in fact, Dr. Cohen and the CDC had led the efforts to provide hundreds of thousands of additional doses. And the better news for the CDC, Dr. Cohen correctly predicted uh, it would be a, a late flu season, correct? Mm -hmm. um, 
And uh, we also heard from Dr. Anthony Fauci, who helped lead the nation's COVID response early in the year. He's expected to testify before the House committee. That will be a must-watch mm -hmm. uh, interview. I think he's doing two private transcripts and one live interview, so I know Americans will be tuned into that. He explained to us the importance of maintaining good ties to that country, uh, in that country being China, mm -hmm. uh, which is so important. Uh, in all of the uh, issues uh, in public health. The situation right now with the enmity that we have yeah. towards China is very counterproductive. The more we make accusations and the more we push against them, the more they pull back. And yeah. in order to be able to have the kind of broad global surveillance, global cooperation, global collaboration, you've got to have a relationship the way we had before COVID, right. which was a relationship of exchange of scientific information, supporting each other. And a lot of very good science has come out of China, uh, particularly in the field of infectious diseases, right. but other diseases. We've had collaborations with the Chinese for decades and decades. Now, if you ask somebody, it looks like we're at war with them, which is really very well, non-productive. The anti-vaxxer movement also was part of our conversation with Food and Drug Administration Commissioner Dr. Robert Califf. He explained the impact that the continuing falsehoods about vaccines is having on the United States. I think misinformation is actually the leading cause of death in America now because so many people who die um, could have done things to change it had they um, gotten better uh, information in a way which motivated them to act in very simple things like taking proven medications to prevent uh, cardiac events, for example. Um, and certainly vaccination is another uh, example of the same thing. But this is a very complex and difficult issue. We're in such a different environment now with the um, advent of the internet and the use of um, algorithms and social media. It's just an article last week that really got my attention that demonstrated a social science article that if the headline of an article has a negative word in it, it gets more clicks than the, exactly the same headline without a negative word. And so um, there's also an article that shows that physicians are just as affected in their recommendations by which news outlets they watch as lay people are. So these things are telling us that if we believe that a federal agency like FDA can just make a determination and put out one statement and things will happen, uh, that's a very naive perspective. On the other hand, we, you know, we highly value um, the First Amendment and the right to free speech. So finding where that appropriate middle ground is. Um, is really difficult. And I'm not arguing that we know that right now, mm -hmm. but we've got to be um, constantly working on um, trying to get accurate, reliable information to people. Margaret, we touched on so many important issues this year. And one of the most important was women's reproductive health rights, which continued to make headlines and affect election outcomes in 2023. We asked the United States Department of Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra to speak out about what has happened since the Supreme Court decision, the Dobbs decision to overturn a woman's constitutional right to an abortion. Well, first, we're going to do everything under the sun 
to protect the health of every American, certainly a woman and her reproductive rights and access to abortion. Uh, you have to remember that in a, a woman is three times more likely to die of a complication during pregnancy if she happens to reside in a state that restricts her access to abortion care services than if she lives in a state that gives her a full set of the reproductive services that she needs. And so we are seeing women and their health harmed simply because of the politics in that state. So we at the federal level are doing everything we can to continue to protect a woman's right to access the care she needs, including abortion care. So that means if she's got an emergency under federal law, any provider, a hospital has to give her the services she, she needs for that emergency, including abortion care. We're gonna make sure that we protect the privacy, not just of the patient, but of the providers as well. They're entitled to privacy. We're gonna make sure that if there's uh, a medication that's available for any American that's prescribed because it is safe and effective, that a woman has access to, to it. So medication abortion, mifepristone, everybody hears about the drug. That is safe and effective. We're gonna do everything we can to make sure every woman continues to have access to Medicaid abortion. And so we're gonna continue to work with those who are trying to protect a woman's rights as much as we can because no American should have to go without their health care. Since our interview, new data have provided a clearer picture about abortion in America. A report from the Society of Family Planning showed the number of abortions fell to nearly zero in states with the strictest bans since the Supreme Court decision. However, abortions rose in other states, especially those states located close to those with the bans. We can expect abortion to play a prominent role in the 2024 presidential election. It will be the first presidential vote since the Supreme Court's ruling. In addition to abortion rights, mental health news remains a critically important issue. The government stated that the number of suicides in the United States has reached a record number. The American Psychiatric Association President Dr. Petros Lavunas is at the center of the efforts to prevent suicides. With substance use addiction, a key part of their work, he and his fellow APA members have launched a campaign with the hope that more people can benefit in the new year. Uh, yes, the, uh, our campaign has uh, one major goal, to open up the conversation. Uh, way in the past, uh, we thought that uh, when you talk about suicide, you may be making things worse. We know that it's not true. The more we talk about these matters, the better off we are. So opening up the conversation, having that first uh, um, uh, openness with, with, uh, with a loved one or with uh, anyone whom you trust is just so essential. Um, of course, seeing a professional, seeing your, your primary care physician, seeing a psychiatrist is a great idea, but the majority of people who have start feeling um, depressed or, or anxious or sometimes even suicidal, uh, they would prefer to talk to someone other than a psychiatrist mm -hmm. uh, at first. So this is what the campaign's uh, strength is all about, to uh, not just say there's one and only one path to finding help. Well, Dr. Lavunas, anxiety, of course, is a big contributor to distress uh, that may get people to that state. And the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force uh, has now recommended for the first time, I believe, uh, that physicians screen all adult patients under age 65 for symptoms of anxiety. 
Are you and your members uh, seeing or are you hearing reports of an uptick in referrals uh, coming from primary care and other physician and other healthcare provider practices? Do you think this is going to be helpful? It is going to be helpful. Uh, it is going to be uh, to raise uh, awareness about uh, anxiety uh, disorders, uh, but we have not really seen the effect that you mentioned uh, yet. Maybe too early. Uh, this just uh, happened this uh, summer. So yeah. uh, we, we, we haven't uh, seen the uptick that uh, maybe we will experience in the future. But more than the specific uh, referrals, it's once again uh, in, the, in the spirit of opening up the conversation and making this uh, diagnosis uh, uh, much less uh, fearsome than they used to be. Dr. Sharif El-Nahal, the Undersecretary for Health in the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs, says their most important clinical care and public health issue right now is preventing veteran suicides. The data show that 17 vets a day die by suicide. Hey, thank you for asking about that because it is my most important clinical priority for veteran care and also our most important public health priority to uh, really reduce veteran suicides to the lowest extent possible. Even one veteran dying by suicide is one too many. Every single veteran suicide is a tragedy that we have to learn from. And we are doing that to the extent possible every single day. And we really have three prongs to our approach in reducing veteran suicide. The first is to make sure that crisis care is available to any veteran who needs it, no matter where they are. And our veterans crisis line is on first with that. It's a much easier number to remember now, it's 988, and if you're a veteran, press one. You get connected to a professional on the other end who can help you through that crisis and help you understand that there's a reason to keep going and a reason to live and then connect you to VA care uh, that's needed after that. On top of that, our emergency rooms, our clinicians and medical centers across the country are there for you. It is okay not to be okay. There's a stigma around mental health. For veterans, it could be life-saving to encourage a battle buddy or if you're a caregiver loved one, to encourage that veteran to seek health care. We also have really important community coalitions that we are funding across the country. We've now given out more than $50 million in grants this year alone to community organizations that help fortify a veteran's social and support network to be protective against the risk of suicide. And finally, and very importantly, the work we are doing on gun safety and lethal means safety, we hand out gun locks with every opportunity we have. This isn't us wading into any type of political debate on guns. It's just allowing for a few extra seconds to minutes to help save that veteran's life. If they need to reach out for uh, somebody to unlock their gun or if their gun lock is with their caregiver or loved one, that could be a life-saving situation where they would not use that firearm to die by suicide. And so between all of those initiatives, we're working as hard as we can on this very important public health priority. On another front, this is the time when many of us make our New Year's resolution. Uh, have you made one yet? <laughs> I have, same as last year's <laughs> and the year before. If your goal is to lose weight, you have the help uh, in that battle. Uh, FDA Commissioner Dr. Califf uh, shared his perspective. You know that we, and uh, more than almost any other country, are suffering from this enormous amount of obesity, uh, type 2 diabetes, hundreds of thousands of teenagers now with type 2 diabetes. And the biology of um, the weight gain that we've experienced as a country has been poorly understood. And I think as much as anything else, these new classes of drugs are giving us insight 
into mm-hmm. something that a few scientists knew about, but most of us were oblivious to, which is that the connection between the gut and the brain that uh, affects our appetite is a complex neurohormonal connection. And so these drugs um, intervene in those pathways. And what I would say is that um, obviously uh, the FDA has found um, one of the drugs to be safe and effective, not only for diabetes, but also obesity. And there's another one which uh, the data will come in soon from uh, large trials that'll give us the insight that we need to have. Um, I feel like this is going to be the beginning of a revolution in the way that we uh, control weight, not just with the pills, but because we'll understand the biological mechanisms better. There'll probably be multiple therapeutic approaches, including better uh, use of the integration of digital technologies and um, uh, and uh, medicines. So uh, would I prescribe it? now, um, uh, you know, safe and effective for the intended population. I think the biggest issue in front of us is going to come from very large trials that are underway about people that have obesity but don't have diabetes. Mm -hmm. And in that population, the results of those trials will tell us what we need to do. If If you have a reduction in death, a reduction in disability due to orthopedic conditions or cardiovascular events, then by all means, um, on average, the benefits will outweigh the risks. But like all drugs, all interventions, there are side effects and toxicities. We have to be aware of those as clinicians, and we need to inform patients. Mm-hmm. The good thing about these drugs, like many others, is that most of the side effects are symptomatic. And so if someone's having symptoms of side effects, you can stop the treatment. Um, that, that's kind of a nice quality of this kind of intervention. We also heard from Dr. Jamie Ard, the president-elect of the Obesity Society. We talked with him about research that shows that black patients already receive less obesity treatment than white patients, despite facing a higher prevalence of obesity. He and other physicians are looking for insurance to pick up more of the costs of some of the revolutionary medications now available. I think we're at a watershed moment. This is really sort of an inflection point, if you will, in thinking about the potential change in the landscape and how we conceptualize treatment of obesity. Um, For the longest, a lot of the the basic thinking about how we treat obesity was rooted in the idea that, well, it's just a calorie imbalance and people are typically eating too much and exercising too little. And obviously if we reverse that, then that will solve the problem. Um, And as we know that that clearly has not worked and it doesn't absolve us from um, continuing to focus on how we prevent excess weight gain and and modify our environments in a way that make healthy living more um, easily attainable for a larger portion of people. But for those of us who have, you know, developed obesity and and live with obesity, um, the, that mantra and that, that idea of eat less, move more just, doesn't work and we have to have a biological process that actually helps to deal with the core issue and so this is at the you know at its core an issue at the brain level where the brain is not responding to this environment appropriately in terms of helping us to manage the um you know energy dysregulation that has happened in this environment so 
medications actually really do get at that core issue and they help the individual um, better respond to this environment and reduce intake in a way that um, allows for that individual to, to lose weight. And as our understanding has changed and evolved over time, we think that, yeah, our policies and the way we identify treatment and, and take care of patients um, should evolve with that. Um, and so this this is why these types of conversations are so important because it helps us to highlight where our bias thinking in the past continues to have an impact on policy and influences decision-making around resource allocation currently. Well, revolutionary uh, medicine really describes this. A new study has added uh, to our understanding, it found that the diabetes drug, uh, Monjaro uh, is more effective for weight loss than Ozempic for overweight or obese adults. The Monjaro user also saw larger reductions in body weight over a longer period of time. Really quite remarkable. Innovations with artificial intelligence are also bringing excitement as well as anxiety to the healthcare sector. The World Health Organization issued a statement expressing concern about artificial intelligence in healthcare. Mayo Clinic's Chief Information Officer, Chris Ross, laid out the issues at play. These technologies are uh, value neutral, but their usage is not necessarily value right. neutral. Uh, bad people can use good technology for bad purposes. So I think there's a, a, a very robust debate about whether these technologies should be regulated whether they can be regulated, and if they are regulated, how would you do that? So to a large degree, um, these are being managed at this time in a coalition of the willing, if you will. Now there's different regulatory and even statutory regimes that are emerging in different places, and we'll see what happens. But at the moment, this is a bit of a, we're being governed by our good conscience kind of world. You know, Margaret, a day doesn't go by where AI isn't in the uh, front page of the paper. Or our conversations. Or our conversations. <laughs> uh, at the time of that interview, the Biden administration was working on a new AI regulation, which unveiled uh, in late October. The regulation covers safety and security, but some critics say they still do not go far enough on our program. Innovation is always part of our focus. This summer, we are we were part of the Aspen uh, Ideas Health. Uh, we had such a wonderful time there. Uh, they run such a great uh, uh, initiative. Uh, we uh, were able to hear from leaders uh, of the Advanced Research Project Agency for Health. It's known as ARPA-H and is backed by nearly $3 billion in federal money with the mandate to accelerate better health outcomes for everyone. The initiative aims to work outside of traditions with a range of performers and a variety of approaches to solve healthcare's biggest hurdles. We talk with Renee Wagerson, the director of the initiative. Yeah, this is really the vision of President Biden. So uh, a little over a year ago, he announced and called on Congress to fund ARPA-H to be a place that we can take these really big bets on health, yeah. big audacious ideas to work towards cures in cancer and Alzheimer's, but actually be agnostic and be an agency that could launch uh, a multitude of moonshots for health moving forward. And so a uh, really special part about ARPA-H is there's not a single one of our dollars is aligned to a single disease or technology, but instead we want to really 
really address these big problems in health. And we do that in a really special way through our program managers that come in for short-term appointments to, uh, to really take that shot on goal to solve that problem and then uh, rinse and repeat. <laughs> we bring a, a lot through to, to address those, those problems going so forward. So that's a radical approach, right? That's new to yes. maybe NIH. I'm not sure. Maybe it will yeah. be as part of an independent agency within NIH. But that's uh, who came up with that concept of how to manage new projects. So it's a, it's not a brand new concept. DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, uh, has really developed the business model of being able to uh, pursue, in their case, uh, breakthrough technologies for national security in a problem-based approach. Uh, but really taking that business model where you give a lot of autonomy to those program managers uh, to pursue those goals. But uh, it's really the Congress that gave us our authorities uh, to, to do special things like have direct hiring authority. So we can hire the experts who want to solve these problems very quickly that we can bring in-house um, and a lot of autonomy in decision-making. So while uh, we have been stood up within NIH and we have a wonderful relationship, especially with the, the, the technical world-class experts that work there, uh, we, we bring in their insights to ARPA-H, but, but we're the ultimate decision-makers. We set the timelines. We set those really aggressive milestones because um, that's our unique role in the ecosystem, to take these big risks that NIH, that the private sector can't take, um, and then we de-risk it, and then it, it leaves the agencies. So that's, that's really this, this new piece for us. Margaret, since our interview, ARPA-H has made investments in radical new ways to detect and treat cancers, improvements to clinical trials, advances in vaccines, and cutting edge data security technologies. There's a lot at stake, and we look forward to sharing the developments when they're ready. As we leave you, we send our best wishes for peace and health in 2024. As always, go online to chcradio.com to sign up for email updates. You can also share your thoughts and comments about this program. But most of all, Mark and I thank you for joining us, and we look forward to even more conversations in and about healthcare in the year ahead. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Copyrighted program is produced by Conversations on Healthcare and cannot be reproduced or retransmitted in whole or in part without the explicit.